Praise the Lord. You guys look great. John James, you look great. I like that tie. Y'all looking good today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, today we have a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. We also call it the Our Father. And today I'm going to teach about the specific line, Hallowed be thy name. That's the part we're on. We're on this big series going through the prayer. And today I want to share with you, kind of want to begin and say that this is a very dangerous prayer to pray. And I'll explain why it's dangerous in just a minute. But it has to do with the whole sermon I could wrap up in just a sentence that we're going to talk about today, how God is totally other. He's holy. His name is holy. He's above his creation. And at the same time, he is with us and he is personal. That's the whole sermon wrapped up in one point. And it's this point that God is with us and personal that makes this prayer so Dangerous. At least it really was in the first century. Jesus prays to his father and people want to kill him. Have you ever seen this in the gospel? I was reading uh, this week in John chapter 5. Jesus is at these pools of Bethsaida out in, inside Jerusalem and people are there to get healing. Reminds me in some ways of Manitou and how people would come to Manitou for the healing spring waters. And so Jesus is at these pools, these spring water pools. People are there to get healed. Jesus heals one of them miraculously on the spot and it happens to be on the Sabbath. People are upset with him because in that Jewish context, you didn't do work on the Sabbath. So instead of, I mean, a picture like someone being healed instantly and you're like, you shouldn't have done this on the Sabbath. Like what kind of reaction is that? He's, they're mad at Jesus and Jesus says, well, my father is always working. And they're like, he just called God father. And what did they want to do? Well, John chapter five says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So listen to this. So that's a dangerous prayer, right? To pray to God as father. How does Jesus tell us to pray? He starts off and says, when you pray, say our father. This is a very dangerous prayer to pray because in the Jewish context, to to consider God, this personal relationship, like a father was very dangerous and even considered blasphemous. But this is what our God invites us to. To do. So that's your intro, a little outline. Let's stand and read together Luke chapter 1. This is the preface to the Lord's Prayer, and then we will together pray the Lord's Prayer as it is found in Matthew. So listen to these words. Luke 11, verse 1 says One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, Say, so join with me saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine and the kingdom and the power and the glory ever. Amen. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. God, we thank you. Lord, we continue in this line of prayer that, and say that you are holy and awesome. You are in heaven and hallowed be your name. And at the same time, Lord, you give us your name and you ask us, you tell us to call you Father. So Lord, we praise you and we worship you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God's people shouted, 
Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. It's interesting, uh, pastors often do this, and I think it's very helpful as they're speaking and giving sermons to, to look at a text and say, here's what it says, and here's what it does not say. So a disciple, on, on the basis of the other disciples, comes and says, Jesus teaches how to pray, and he, he says, well, well, here's how to pray. He doesn't rebuke them. I mean, the disciple comes up and says, would you teach us to pray as John's disciples prays? He could have said, well, what do you, what do you all care about what John's doing? You know, like, what do you, who do you, you know, you want to be one of John's disciples? Go be one of John's disciples. Why are you so worried about what John's doing? It's like when you have kids, I have four boys, they come home and they say, well, everybody else in my class gets to stay up after this time for bed or everybody else in my class has a cell phone. I was like, what? You're in kindergarten. Nobody has a cell phone. Yeah, they do. Actually, they do. Dad, well, what good? You're not their kids. You're my kids. Jesus could have like, rebuked his own disciples and said, what do you care what John's? You're one of my disciples. He doesn't do that. He could have rebuked them for like asking such a simple question. It's like, what do you mean how to pray? Like, what, what have we been doing all these months? Maybe all these years, but I don't know what period of time this is, at which point they were disciples. But Jesus could have said, what do you mean? Like, we, we do this every day. Why would you ask me how to pray? I'm thinking about like a car mechanic. Like, has been a car mechanic for months. Comes to like the master mechanic, the boss, and says, hey, could, would you mind showing me how to change the oil? Like, what? Like, you're a, what have you been doing? Like, this is day one stuff. So Jesus does not rebuke his disciples. Instead, he just begins to teach them. Like, here's how to pray. He also doesn't give them like a false confidence. Like, like one of the disciples comes on behalf of the others and, and says, Jesus, how do we pray? He could have said, well, you got this. You know, just, you know, you got this. Just, you know, fake it till you make it. Uh, you'll figure it out. You just go ahead and pray and, and, fi- and it, God's with you. You just pray. He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes the question seriously. He gives them a prayer and we still to this day have this prayer. It says, when you begin, say, our father, which is a personal way of, 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 of looking at God and praying to him. And then hallow, uh, 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 our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we have these two things at the same time. So I have uh, the first point uh, I will give you this morning. I, th- I think I, I may not be the funniest pastor saying the best joke. I may not have the best dance moves as a pastor, but I think New Life Manitou, I may be one of the most organized. I always have, how many points do I have for you? I always have three points. I try to keep organized for your sake and for my sake. I think it comes from like all my years of schooling where like I'm taking notes and all of a sudden the teacher will be like, okay, now point number five is this. And you're like, point number, what have you, what was point one, two, three, or four? And you look around, you're like, what are you, did he, what did he, what is the other, do you have the notes? Let me see your notes. No one has, like, he's just like jumping in. So I try to keep things organized for you and for me. So point number one, we'll, we'll put that up on the slide here. Our God is both transcendent and imminent. Two big words, to a seminary level, master's level. I remember learning these words in seminary, which will bring us to a nerd alert. Can I get my best nerd alert sound? Uh, God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendence I'll define and imminence I'll define in just a second. And they are opposites. And we as Christians hold both of these things. Although they are opposite, we hold both to be fully true. Transcendence means this, that God is above 
God is other. Transcendence means lying beyond the limits of the ordinary. We could say transcendence. God is holy. God is to be revered. God is awesome. He is sovereign. He is totally above his creation. He is not in his creation. He's above it. He made it. That's transcendence. And we hold that as believers and what we see in the Bible again and again, 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 and again to be fully true. And at the same time, we hold Eminence to be true. Eminence would be the opposite of transcendence. That God is with. He's in. He's here. He's personal. I, I found this definition. God's spirit permeates the mundane. He is totally here with us in. And he's totally fully above, beyond, outside of. Right? Like we hold both of these things to be true. And I'm no expert in uh, the religions of the world, but I'm pretty sure from what I've studied, this art religion, Christianity is the only religion that fully holds these two opposite things to be 100% true at the same time. Think about other religions like Islam. Islam worships their God, Allah. And Allah is totally transcendent. He's totally above. He's not here with us. He is above. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, that, that is the, the religion of Islam. I think of other religions like uh, maybe Hinduism or uh, I think of like the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon of gods, how those gods are totally within the creation. They're battling each other like humans can kind of trick them and they go back and forth and they're in creation. Well, Christianity, we don't hold to that idea of tricking God and stuff, but we hold to the full idea of imminence and transcendence at the same time. And I see this, why I'm bringing this up is that I see this in the opening lines, good theology of how Jesus shares with us how to pray. He says, our father, like the most imminent thing you can do to call God your own heavenly good spiritual father, like to call God father, the Jews in Jesus' day thought that was blasphemous, way too personal. Why are you doing that? They wanted to kill him. And on the other hand, in the same prayer, in the same lines, our father who are in heaven, He's above. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. So we have both things, transcendence and imminence, both in the first lines of this very important prayer. And I think good theology, I know good theology is very important to our spiritual life, our prayer life, how we see the world, how we see the church, how we see one another. It is extremely important. Theology is not just for people writing books. Theology is for us and it needs to be solid and it needs to be good. So I have a question for you. Um, the two questions. You may fall on either perspective of this question that I'm about to ask you. And maybe this is the question you kind of remember from this sermon. I think there's sometimes in a sermon something that will stand out. And I pray that this might be that moment for you, like thinking through, how do you see God? Are you seeing God in a way that is a little off, that is, that is too transcendent and ne- neglecting the imminence, or too imminent and neglecting transcendence? So my question for you is this, where is God for you in this lineup of transcendence and eminence? Maybe um, for some of you, you would fall into the category of transcendence. So, so as you think about this, like 
If God is so transcendent, lacking eminence, then maybe you would pray some kind of prayer that's like, God, if you're even out there, maybe some of you, some of us have prayed that prayer thinking, God, if you're even listening right now, God, I, I I was having breakfast with someone this week and they said they had a friend who was sick and needed healing, but they didn't want to pray to God because, oh, God's, man, God's got better things to do. I'm not, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. God is fully imminent. He's personal. He wants to be with us. He wants that relationship with us. Have you ever in your life thought that way, that God is just off? He's doing his own thing. Maybe he doesn't even have time for us. I gave this analogy last week of a deist. A deist, our deism would be, we would say it's a type of heresy whereby which the metaphor that's often used is God uh, wound up the world like a clock, like an old clock without batteries, without plugging in. Old clocks had to be wound up. You wind up a clock. God created and wound up a clock, set it down, and then a deist would say, well, God's got better things to do. He's over here. He's doing other things. No, 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 no. God is fully within his creation as well. So maybe the correction for some of us needs to be God is with us. He is here. Don't pray to God as if he's not listening, as if he doesn't care, as if he's not fully with us. So your question today is, is, has two parts. So that could be one part. The other part is, well, maybe the God you worship and pray to and the theology you've given to the God that, that you um, believe in is too eminent, lacking transcendence. Maybe for you, like you think about God and it's just like someone you're tagging along, like God is my homeboy or God is my boyfriend or I have this image in my head of like you rushing around the grocery store going from place to place and you're like dragging a little toddler with you like I'm gonna go here and I need to do this I need to pick up that and God come on God let's go I'm trying to dragging God along in your own life that God is just like this this thing that you kind of sprinkle into situations and he's not fully transcendent. He's not holy. He's not to be revered. He's just kind of this tag along thing, like a Santa Claus kind of thing. Life and your Christian life is all about you. And God just kind of gets drug along like a little toddler. No, 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 no. God is fully, holy, transcendent. He is above and beyond our world. And he is sovereign and he is in control and he is with us. So this is the question. I mean, for for you, it's just you and God. Like, where do you find yourself in your theology of of transcendence and eminence? Maybe this is a good question to ask each other later on. Hey, Joe asked that question uh, about transcendence and eminence. Where do you think you fall on that scale? Where is your theology? If you lean to one or the other, which one would it be? So that's that's where we're at right now. That's point number one to recap is, is... Um, taking the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we see both our Father and we see who art in heaven. Holy, hallowed be your name. So let's concentrate on that phrase now. Hallowed be your name for the next few minutes. Point number two is this, uh, concentrating on the name that God gives us his name, which is a very imminent thing to do, to give someone your name. A name goes beyond just what something or someone is called, right? It's not just, uh, a name is not just a name. It's how you're known. It's how uh, someone knows you. It's, you know, uh, like a trademark. You can trademark a name. With a name comes identity and history. We talk about like making a name for ourselves. We talk about uh, someone going to jail or, or a court case to clear their name. 
It has a lot more to do, a name, than just what something is, is called. It has to do with identity. It has to do with knowing. And Jesus, God himself, gives us his name. Names are very important. They're very important to me as a pastor. I think Brett would agree. Uh, like we need to know people's names in the community of God. Like that's, that's one of the first things you can know about someone that, that they know my name or that I know your name. You know my name. That's like day one stuff. And when God gives us his name, it's like he's inviting us into relationship. Here's, I wrote down a whole smattering of a smorgasbord, if you will, of, of, Places that are just so important to me in calling out the Lord's name and, and how important the name is. We are invited to pray in Jesus' name. Jesus says, ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. Psalm 8 begins this beautiful psalm that me and my son Rowan, if you're watching online, uh, memorize. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all of the earth. Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. Thessalonians second uh, says, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 100, I think Jay, if you're watching online, memorize uh, this verse, this, this Psalm with me. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and and praise his name. And the Lord is good. His faithfulness endures forever. Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus warns us, Mark 13, you will be, he's talking about um, to us, the disciples, he said, you will be hated because of my name, but those who endure to the end will be saved. Matthew 6 the prayer, Jesus prays, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is where we're at today. We're looking at this passage. Holy, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That'll be the next point. But God gives us his name. You know, there's this very famous story uh, in the book of Exodus, very early on in the Bible, where Moses, the great prophet of all prophets, uh, sees a burning bush. You know the story? Out of the burning bush comes the voice of God. The voice of God says, uh, Moses, take off your shoes for the ground you're standing on is holy. And so Moses takes off his shoes. And then he says, uh, you're, you're Moses. You are going to lead the people out of the captivity of slavery. And Moses says, well, what am I supposed to call you? When these people, who, if they li even listen to me, who am I supposed to say, sit me? And the Lord says, I am that I am. That is my name. I am. Tell them I am has sent you. In Hebrew, that word is Yahweh. And the Lord in that moment gives Moses his name. Yahweh, I am, the verb of being. We could, we could have a whole sermon series, a whole year of sermon series on that name and the names of God. But here, the point is that God gives us his name. We say holy is your name, and we know that God has given us his name. Somewhere along the line, in between Exodus 3 and the time Jesus came, uh, the Jewish people, and I think this is just, just what we do as people. We make rules, we add things to it. You know, so you take a rule and you, you like enforce a greater rule. That's just kind of human nature. Well, at some point between Exodus 3, the Jewish people, although God gave them the name, they decided to not use it. Oh, this name is too holy. We're not gonna use the name. We're not gonna say the name. We're not even gonna write down the name so that by the time Jesus comes 2,000 years ago, 
They don't even say the name of God. They don't even write the name of God. And here Jesus is calling God Father. Now maybe you get a little background of like how mad they would be if someone called God Father. Let me give you a a, a silly um, metaphor. You'll you'll think it's silly that we're comparing this with the name of God. But imagine a professor in college, a young uh, guy. He just got his doctorate. Uh, He's he's at a college in in a small town. Everyone knows him. He's a single guy. Everyone refers to him as Dr. Professor Smith, right? Everybody knows him. He's, he's, He's written some books. Everybody likes him. He's like kind of the king of the small town. And he begins to like a girl. So they, 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 he starts bumping into this girl more and more. I think about the times uh, years ago when Eric and I would bump into each other a lot. She would always be surprised. Oh, we're bumping into each other again. But I knew where she parked. I knew what class she went to. I'm not smart, but I am motivated. So in this story... The guy keeps bumping into this girl. He's interested in her. She's interested in him. They just keep bumping it. And every time she sees him, she's like, oh, Dr. Professor Smith, the weather's so nice out. Yes, Dr. Professor Smith, blah, blah, blah. At some point, he's gonna look at her and say, why don't you stop calling me Dr. Professor Smith and call me John? Like, why don't you call me my first name? Let's let's see where this relationship can go. And I think that the the example is silly because we're comparing it with the names of God, but God gives us not only his name, his title, the I am that I am, but then also to his believers, to the disciples says, when you pray, tell me, uh, pray to me as our father, a very intimate and personal name. Point number three is this. Um, God's name is holy and he makes things holy. We're on this phrase called hallowed be your name and God's name is holy. Hallowed, that's what that word means. Hallowed is not a word we often use, right? Except for around Halloween where it's all Hallow's Eve. Maybe you didn't know that like all Holy Ones Eve, you could look at your own uh, history of Halloween. But hallowed means to make Holy, to be made holy. And so my question for you is, is what is this holiness? And, and who makes the holy name? Like what makes something holy? Um, and how does that holiness work? Well, holy, the Greek word hagiazo means to sanctify, to purify, to consecrate, to set apart. Otherness is what holy means. And so how does something become holy? Who or what makes something holy? How does one become set apart? How does one become holy? Well, other religions might teach that holiness comes with um, strict rule following or separating yourself from the the society that you live in and kind of putting on uh, maybe even a show or a, a, a costume of holiness. I have a couple pictures of some holy men in other religions. And uh, we'll put up this first picture of this guy. This guy just looks like a, a downtown Manitou uh, guy. Uh, I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> That's horrible. It does. Uh, my mom said, it does look like a downtown Manitou guy. This is not a downtown Manitou guy. This is a downtown Katmandu guy. And he's a Hindu. He, uh, I've, I've been to Nepal a couple times and would see these guys. I've had a couple weird conversations with some of these guys. These guys are called Babu. Babu. 
Babas, uh, it means it's, it's Hindu for something, I forget, you could look it up. But they hang out on the, on the river that is a tributary to the Ganges. These are called, considered in the Hinduism, in Kathmandu, holy people, holy men. And so they, they sit around and you could visit them and ask them questions and, and they just hang out. And you, you kind of, they're kind of like gurus. We'll put up the next picture. This is a sadhu. This is an Indian sadhu. And I've been to India and these guys are people that you can go up to, kind of like a counselor. You could pay them money. You can get advice. You can, they can be your guru. You could start a relationship with these sadhus and they will lead you through uh, like Hinduism. Uh, the next slide is Tibetan Buddhists. So here's a bunch of guys um, in Tibet. I've been to Tibet quite a few times uh, and, and have seen these guys. I, I've um, gone to some of their monasteries. They're holy people and they're considered holy people because they're set apart and they're, and they're, they're, they, they're holy in that tradition of Tibetan Buddhism or Hinduism. And the whole society kind of sees these people as holy. But as an outsider as, and as a Christian looking in to some of these individuals, um, like going back to the, uh, the, the, the guy that's in Kathmandu, the Baba, um, these guys, like from an outsider's perspective, um, what I would see is someone who's kind of struggling with addiction. Like if you got into what these guys do all day, um, honestly, like you could research it yourself, they sit around and they smoke marijuana like all day, every day, and they sit by the banks of the river and people come to them and bring them things for, for a good gesture. And, uh, they, and like I see someone who is homeless and an addict and they found a place in society that like honors that. And it's, it's honestly, it's like, they're not, in my looking on at them, they're not holy people. They're just addicts who have found a place in society to do that. The other guy, the sadhu of India, uh, I know that oftentimes people will visit them and, and, and they, will take, like, they will take on clients as uh, like gurus and they will require payment. And that's, that's all kind of fine and well. But if you get into studying these guys, many of them, what payment they require of women is not money, if you know what I mean. They require some sort of physical relationship. I was in India, and uh, uh, my team of a church, uh, we took a team to India when I was in the young adults ministry, and we met a, an American woman who was over there, and she had come over there to meet with her guru. And we were just having this conversation. She was in a broken, pretty broken place in her life, and somehow it just got into spiritual things because she asked us what we were doing there. We talked about why we were doing there and Jesus, and it was a really cool conversation. But she said, I'm not sure what to do because my guru, this guy that I've come over, is not just demanding money. He's demanding me to be with him. And it was just like, oh, like th this guy from an outsider looking on, it's like this guy is using his position to take advantage of people. That's not holiness. He's seen as holy. He has on the clothing of holiness, but it's just, it's, it's messed up. He's not holy from the inside out. And I'm not saying that about all the babus and all the sadhus of those religions, but this is, this is what I've seen. The Tibetan Buddhists, I had a missionary friend who was a missionary to Tibetan Buddhists and he, he stationed 
stationed in Kathmandu, but would go to Tibet. And he had a real heart for uh, Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists, especially monks. And somehow he would always get like invited into these monasteries and he was, would hang out with them, eat meals. Like he would be uh, hanging out in the back of rooms where the monks prayed. And then afterwards, like he would share meals with them, just got to know them, got to hang out with them. And he said he was in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery one time and, and just hanging out with the guys, having a meal, looking at their library, and then saw another room attached to the library. And he went into that room and was very disappointed to see magazines and magazines and more magazines of inappropriate. Like, like these guys had a lifestyle where they're celibate and holy and everyone sees them as holy, but in the dark room beyond a separate library lied a room full of images that brought shame and of women. And it was just like, oh, this, this is what is at the inside of humanity. Holiness is not on the inside of humanity. We need to get close to God. We can't make ourselves holy and do all these works. We need to be close to the Lord and he makes us holy. Ephesians says that, our Galatians, excuse me, says that by, by faith we are made righteous. Even Abraham, it was credited to, he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as holiness. The thing that makes us holy is God. Point number three is God himself. God's name is holy, and he makes things holy. The Greek here is a passive, no subject, void, a subject of a divine passive in the Greek that says that, well, God is the one that makes God holy. Where God's name is, things are being made holy. We can't, although we try to make ourselves holy, we can't. It is a gift. It is the grace of God that makes us holy. And so the declaration, our Father, connection with a personal God who art in heaven, he is transcendent. Hallowed be your name. This is a declaration that God himself is holy and he makes us holy. God takes the ordinary like us and makes us holy. I want to invite the band to come up. They're going to lead us in the song, holy, holy, holy. But I want to talk for just a second and then I'll lead us in prayer. That every week we go to the table of the Lord. We, We receive communion. And this is the most ordinary of things, a little bread and a little cup. And, and for goodness sakes, it's like in this plastic thing. That's how we're doing it now. And, and we invite everyone to receive these gifts of communion with us because it's an ordinary thing, but it's made holy. We talk about the mystery of communion, the mystery of Christ's body and his blood shed for us. Why is it such a big deal? Well, because God makes it holy. That's what he does with us. He takes the ordinary and makes holy. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us and then Brett's going to lead us to the table. God, we receive from you holiness. God, your name is holy. You make things holy. You make ordinary places and people holy by your work. Lord, it's not our work. Lord, it's by your body and blood that we are made whole. Holiness, Lord, belongs to you. And Lord, we pray, we we thank you that you are our Father. You are in heaven. And Lord, holy, holy, holy 
is your name. So Lord, we stop and we reflect on your holiness and how you give it to us.